The Eagle and Child, Episode 37. Aslan's Country. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week, my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and once again, I'm joined by my friend Matt. And this week, we have a special episode because David just got back from England and actually traveled to Oxford, which is one of my favorite places, uh, not only because of C.S. Lewis, but having spent time there. And so I'm excited to hear the places that David saw there. And we're going to learn a bit about Lewis because you spent a lot of time going to different places that were very Lewis-esque, I guess. I'm not sure if that would be the right way to put it, but particularly his home, obviously. Lewisian. Lewisian. I like that. That's a good way of putting it. Oh, and also on this one, we're going to talk about my correct some mailbag questions. Yeah, we're also going to look at one particular set of questions, which came from Giovanna about God and gender. Ooh, perfect. Because in a, in a recent episode, I referred to God as he, and she had some questions about that. By the way, we've had some other questions since then that we're going to address in future episodes. I love when we get questions, because that means people actually care what we're saying. <laughs> and we, we know that Lewis wasn't God, not everything he says is right, not everything we say communicating what he said is going to be right either. And so I love that people keep bringing stuff up. What's the quote for this week? The quote comes from C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain. He says, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. I love that, particularly since I went to some rather pleasant inns while I was in England. And you also went to a home. I did indeed. (laughs) But not my ultimate home. No, just a pleasant inn on the way to your ultimate home. Mm -hmm. So today we're drinking some Stella. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. So let's jump in. Talk about the greatest place on earth, Oxford. (laughs) And by extension, England. Let's not go that far. So I went to Oxford on a Tuesday. As you know, these episodes come out on Tuesday because Tuesday morning, Lewis and the rest of the Inklings would meet in the Eagle and Child. I didn't actually know that. <laughs> I didn't know why you picked Tuesday. That was arbitrary. No, nothing I do is arbitrary. I'm realizing that. I don't know why I underestimated you. Never underestimate me. I won't. But those of you who follow us on Twitter and Instagram, or rather follow me because... Matt doesn't do social media. Uh, You'll know that I toured all of the C.S. Lewis sites. So when we got there in the morning, we went to the Bodleian and went to go and see a Tolkien exhibit. It had all of his works in different languages uh, and maps, which he drew himself, as well as his drawings and paintings. I actually had no idea that Tolkien was such a gifted artist. And one of the really cute things that we discovered is that for 23 years, he wrote letters from Father Christmas to his children. And they weren't just short little letters. They involved stories of when these bad elves went and stole all the toys and done in beautiful calligraphy and drawing. It was, it was really impressive. Man, this makes me want to step up when I'm a father someday. My parents used to actually write letters from Santa to us. And they would use this pen that vibrated. So as a kid, I believed it wasn't for my parents for the longest time. (laughs) Actually, I believed in Santa way too long until about sixth grade, I think. Well, the only thing that my parents did is, I remember one Christmas, they got a pair of my dad's work boots and sprinkled glitter around them. 
and then took the boots away. And they did this at the foot of the chimney. So it looked like they were Father Christmas's footprints just before he ascended up the chimney. Okay, that's cool. That was pretty cool. <laughs> and also we, li- we lived in the country, so uh, there was also one time on Christmas morning when a deer had run over our lawn. So we had deer tracks. And they <laughs> explained that they were from Father Christmas's sleigh. <laughs> I right, continue. Uh, so I was, I was in Oxford with my mother. And uh, we had lunch actually at the Bodleian. And one thing I noticed was almost everywhere in Oxford, there wasn't Wi-Fi or there were no laptop zones. So you, if during the main hours, you weren't actually allowed to work on your laptop in the Bodleian, at least in the cafe area. I think they were really trying to retain more of a traditional scholarly environment with fountain pens and journals. You know, I used to study in the Bodleian when I was there. And mm-hmm. I actually went there sometimes for that very specific reason. A lot of the things I had to read were books still. I mean, this was 2011. This was before um, computer textbooks, digital textbooks. And so, yeah, I just take my textbook, my pen and my paper and no internet. I didn't really have a cell phone. It was great. It's one way of forcing you to do some work. I get that. Yeah. And mental health is way better. Anyway, we then took a taxi to C.S. Lewis's house known as the Kilns. Let me cut in here and ask you this. I've walked in the footsteps of Jesus in Israel. Would you take Lewis's house over walking where Jesus walked? No, because one lets me go to Israel. Now that sounds way more fun. I don't know. I kind of like Oxford better. I've never been to Israel, so I couldn't comment. I kind of think walking the footsteps of C.S. Lewis in Oxford is pretty much like walking the footsteps of Jesus. Oh, that sounds mildly heretical. But I'll <laughs> <let it> go. <laughs> That's a good thing. There's such a thing as grace. Anyway, we took a taxi to the Kilns, and it was in Headington, a couple of miles outside of Oxford, where Lewis lived with his brother, Warney. And we got there a little early, so we got to walk around the C.S. Lewis Nature Reserve. It used to be part of the grounds of the house, but they handed it over to this nature reserve. The best part was that they also had a bomb shelter, a World War II bomb shelter that was built by Paxton the Gardener. And I found out why Hitler didn't bomb Oxford. Turned out he really loved Oxford, and he had plans that once he had conquered Britain, he was going to set up his capital in Oxford. That's unreal to think about. I never knew that. Thankfully, he never got to do it. So, in your face, Hitler. And we then spent a little bit of time wandering around through the grounds in the forest. And uh, there were a few benches, so we sat down and I read aloud the final few pages of a C.S. Lewis biography I was reading. Really enjoyed it, by the way. It's The Most Reluctant Convert by David Downing. Anyway, we then went back to the house. There were people congregating in the garden, probably about 10 or 12. And we were greeted by a lovely young lady named Jenny. Not everyone knows this, but there are actually students staying in the kilns. They're typically pursuing advanced degrees at the university in theology, English literature, that sort of thing. Wouldn't that be cool if you got to do that? Yeah, I'd have to do a doctorate, though. That seems like an awful lot of work. I feel like you'd love that. It would be pretty cool to have that as my address for a little while. (laughs) Dr. Bates. That does sound amazing. I wouldn't call you that. (laughs) She had us introduce ourselves to the group. It was a pretty mixed bunch. But there was one gentleman there who actually lived a couple of doors down from where Lewis grew up in his house in Belfast. Oh, wow. Yeah, so he was getting to see all of the places that Lewis had lived. And there was also a girl, I think she was probably around 11 years old. She was from the States, and she loved the Chronicles of Narnia so much that she dragged her entire family with her to see Lewis's home. Oh my goodness, that's so cute. 
It's kind of adorable. Don't you hope your daughter's that way someday? She will be if she wants an inheritance. (laughs) And you don't need to worry when it came to introducing myself and my mother. I shamelessly promoted the podcast. Oh, fantastic. What did people say? No one said, oh, that's so cool. Oh, no, she she said it was cool. There were were general murmurs of, oh, that's interesting. That's good. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) We went inside and we started with the sitting room. In there, there was a desk, some of his pipes, a writing set, and a small statue of a lion. And they've generally tried to leave the kilns as it would have been in Lewis's age when he lived there. But we were told that one of the things that they did do was paint the walls. And they said that they didn't paint the ceiling. They told us to look up, and you could see the nicotine stains covering the ceiling. Because Lewis and his brother Warney, they lived there by themselves for quite some time. These guys are bachelors. So they didn't really go in for cleaning. We were told that when Joy Davidman moved in eventually into the kilns when she and Lewis got married, she washed the curtains and they disintegrated. Oh my goodness. They were only being held together by nicotine and cobwebs. That is so gross. <laughs> yes, it is kind of revolting. You know, I love Lewis, but had I walked into that home, even if he was alive and said, let's sit down for a few hours, oh, I'd probably been like, I can't stand this. One of the things that he and Warney used to do is they would empty out their pipes actually onto the ground. They didn't use an ashtray in the belief that it kept insects away. Oh, my goodness. Just when I thought Lewis was smart. (laughs) Well, I think it also kept women away. I think it was very effective in that. (laughs) Joy Davidman was known to be pretty fearless. After hearing that, I'm not surprised. That's unreal. And we actually then went down and we looked at Warney's room. I knew that, like Lewis, Warney had fallen away from his childhood Christian faith. But what I didn't know is that he came back to Christianity through Eastern religions. And that's actually marked in his room by this little statuette of the Buddha. We then left Warney's room and we went past the music room. And this was the room where Mrs. Moore taught violin and piano. I've never heard of Mrs. Moore. Ah, well, she was the mother of Paddy Moore. Paddy was at Oxford with Lewis, and they were both preparing to go and fight in World War I. And they had a pact that if Paddy died, Lewis would look after his family and vice versa. Paddy sounds so much like a girl's name. <laughs> I actually have an uncle, Paddy. But anyway, Paddy was actually killed in World War I, and Lewis was true to his word. And remember, a teenager. They were teenagers at this point. But he followed through. That was actually the reason why Lewis and Warney bought a place that was so large. It was to accommodate Mrs. Moore and her daughter. Oh, wow. After that, we went up the very narrow stairs. As I said, they, they tried to leave the building as untouched as possible, but they had actually converted part of one of the attic rooms to reflect the kind of room where Warney and Jack would have played as children. You weren't actually allowed to step inside, but our guide explained that once a very enthusiastic Russian tourist had rushed ahead, and fallen through the floor and ended back up in the living room below. (laughs) Wow. Then we got to the really cool bit, and that was Lewis's study in his bedroom. So I got to sit at his desk and pretend to write a letter and smoke one of his pipes. My mother took a picture of me in a chair reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I'll include some of these pictures in the show notes. And his bedroom was actually next door. Our guide told us a very bizarre story. So Lewis's study... Previously, it was actually been Mrs. Moore's bedroom, and Lewis's bedroom had been next door. Later, they actually locked the door between the two for sense of propriety, maybe. 
but that meant that Lewis couldn't get out of his bedroom. So they actually cut a door into his bedroom and then put up a, a set of stairs so that he could access his bedroom from the outside of the house. Well, that's pretty cool. Well, the funny thing is that after Mrs. Moore had died, they couldn't find a key to the door and they didn't do anything about it. So although her bedroom became his study again, Lewis would work late into the night in his study, then put on his coat, put on his shoes, leave the house, and then walk around the outside to go and climb back up into his own bedroom. Apparently, he and Joy had a massive fight about it because she thought that this was ridiculous. She eventually got her way. I'm like the king of convenience where I want to make everything as simple as possible. I don't know how that didn't frustrate Lewis. Well, he's an academic. It's like we, we have a system. It doesn't matter if it's the most efficient system, but we have a system. It works. That's so true. We then went downstairs and into the kitchen, which they actually had to return to its original state. Subsequent owners of the kilns had tried to modernize it and made it all terrible. <sighs> Heathens. Exactly. And there's a picture of Douglas Gresham actually on the wall, and he's got this rather amused look on his face. And it turns out that it's because in the picture he was hiding a cigarette that he was smoking because he wasn't allowed to smoke in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, our guide explained that Douglas told them that story himself. Sometimes when he's in the country, he stops by. That's pretty cool. And there was also a picture of Paxton, the gardener, with the cat. Apparently, the cat was so old that all of its teeth had basically fallen out. Lewis insisted that the cat be fed with a spoon. Do you have a photographic memory by chance? Uh, I was just paying attention. <laughs> I've never heard a more detailed description. <laughs> well, the cool bit was when she actually asked a question. Let's see if you know this. Paxton was the basis for a character in the Chronicles of Narnia. Do you know which character? Who's Paxton? Oh my goodness, dude. The gardener. Okay, okay. Mr. Tumnus. No. Oh, that would have been great had I nailed that. Yeah, you didn't. I was pretty confident you were going to fail, so that's good. Uh, no, <laughs> Paxton was Puddleglum. Never heard of that name. Oh my goodness. You bring shame upon our podcast. I remember Edmund. That's the only name of the kids I know, and I remember Mr. Tumnus. Okay, right. You're basically fired. Um, <laughs> Justin, we're pulling you up from the minors to the majors. Exactly, yes. He's going to get promoted now. It pays very well. <laughs> yes. You'll get lots of compliments from David. That's your payment. Exactly. One a week, whether you deserve it or not. <laughs> Puddle Glum was one of the characters in The Silver Chair. He's amazingly pessimistic. Strangely optimistic as well, you know, when he explains about the different ways that they're going to die, but it could be worse. Yeah, you could get expelled. Get expelled? Oh, you didn't get the reference. Aren't you British? Weren't you just at Oxford? Ha ha. Tisk tisk. Matt wins. Movie reference. So, Hermione Grangey, we could get killed. Oh, Harry Potter, we're ignoring that. Or worse, expelled. Hey, I'm, ignoring, I'm, a, I'm ignoring your Harry Potter references. That was a good one. Oh, don't, don't, don't try to ignore. Congratulations. You have seen a movie. Well done. Yeah, I was going to say, don't try to belittle my movie quote right now. Anyway, she exemplified it with a story from when Lewis and Joy were going on a belated honeymoon. And they were going to Greece because Joy really wanted to see Greece. They were just driving away and Paxton comes running after them and waving. And so they stop the car, roll down the window. And he informs them, because he knows that they're going to be flying, that recently he just read that a plane had gone down and all of the people had died. But anyway, have a nice trip. And then ran back. 
Oh, that's pretty cool. Mm. If you, well, not if, when you read the silver chair again, you'll, you'll recognize the character of Puzzle Glum. Read the silver chair again? Yeah. First of all, I've never read it. And what's the silver chair? It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. Wow, you're, I, I'm just ashamed. Just ashamed. Sorry, I just read Lewis's scholarly works. Well, as Lewis himself said, I hope that someday you're old enough to read fairy stories again. You know what's really funny? This is going to be probably a compliment to Kate Anderson, or it's going to make her mad, but I just hear her in the back of my head. She's a little voice in my head after that comment, just yelling at me. Good. Good. <laughs> She's in my head. <laughs> Kate, you've gotten to me. From the kitchen, we went down the corridor towards the dining room, and there was actually a wardrobe there. It's not one of the official wardrobes. There's apparently two that might be the wardrobe that Lewis based the wardrobe from, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But this wasn't one of them. Although that didn't stop two Californians who were on the trip with us from testing out the wardrobe. And I actually pointed out to the person that was guiding our tour, why is there a possibility of one of two wardrobes? Has nobody tested them yet? Has anybody gone inside and come back with a fawn's handkerchief? Because I think that would prove it pretty conclusively, which is the wardrobe. She agreed with me that it was perfectly sensible and it was settled the matter once and for all. And she doesn't know why people don't do it. So you went in? We tested the one in the, in the corridor. No forest, no fawns. Are you sure you just didn't have strong enough faith? Uh, no, I was, I was all ready for an adventure. Okay, so did you charge in at a running speed and go full force into the back? Lucy, Peter, Edmund, Susan, none of these people charged into the, war- into the wardrobe. I didn't ask what they did, I asked what you did. I'm just following precedent. Anyway, we then went to the dining room, and what was delightful is we were presented with some Turkish delight. It was not enchanted, thankfully. And then after that, we went to the converted garage, which contained Mrs. Moore's piano and the original sign for the Eagle and Child pub. Oh, did you get a, did you get a picture in front of it? Of course. Okay, good. Did you try to steal it? it's a bit big so (laughs) my mother refused to put it in her handbag Uh, bummer and we actually weren't even quite done at that point because mum and I went to Holy Trinity Church which was the parish about 10 or 15 minutes walk away Uh, and a couple of the other pilgrims who had been on our tour were looking for it as well and so we went inside and we found the pew where Lewis worshipped each week and it's actually right next to a stained glass window or I think you'd probably call it an etched window that has a number of scenes from the Chronicles of Narnia in it. And then we caught a taxi straight from the church to the Eagle and Child pub. That's what I call an adventure. Wow, that was a pretty brief story you just told. <laughs> I think we saw our subscriber count go down 20%. Shut up. That was highly entertaining. <laughs> it was lovely, David. Thank you. Well, I was at least very entertained. All I want to do is go back. Like, I'm dying to go back. And I'm considering, I live in New York right now, so I'm considering planning a trip to London maybe in the next six or nine months just because it's so accessible for me. So you've just made me more excited, David. Well, I should be back in England in June, so we might manage to synchronize it. Ooh, that's good to know. I might actually try to do that. But as much as that was beautiful, let's address Giovanna's question about gender in the Trinity. Sure thing. She had uh, a number of questions, and so let's, uh, let's just deal with them. One at a time. She said, I think it was David I heard refer to the Holy Spirit as he in the latest episode. Does the Holy Spirit have a gender? Does God for that matter? Jesus was definitely a dude. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) He was a dude. 
<laughs> he was the dude. <laughs> this is a great question. The Holy Spirit has no gender. God is spirit. He can't have gender, not, not like that at any rate. However, she picked up on the fact that I refer to the Holy Spirit as he. And it's for the simple reason that the Holy Spirit is a person of the Holy Trinity, and the pronoun it, to me, doesn't seem very personal. And additionally, historically, the Holy Spirit has been typically referred to using male pronouns. And we'll get on to a little bit about why that is the case later. To be, to be frank, I never have thought about this theologically, so that's why I'm glad you're doing all the talking. But I've actually <laughs> always thought of the Spirit, I've really not thought of it as a he or a she, but if you had to put a gun to my head before you've given me all this analysis, I would have given it more feminine traits, actually. Mm -hmm. And notice that I just called it an it. <laughs> The bottom line in this entire discussion is that God is spirit and therefore has no gender. However, as Giovanna quite rightly pointed out, Jesus was a dude. When the second person of the Holy Trinity became incarnate, it was as a biological man. But why do we refer to God as a he? I'd say principally it's because of the language of sacred scripture. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is generally described using masculine terms. Uh, the most obvious of these is when Jesus describes God as Father in Matthew 6. And when Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit, he says, He will teach you all things. That's in John 14. Having said that, there is feminine imagery used of God throughout the Bible, but it is in the minority of cases. We gave Giovanna a few of these. Uh, God is described as a mother bear in Hosea, uh, a mother eagle in Deuteronomy. Also in Deuteronomy, God gives birth. He's described as a comforting mother in Isaiah, or a woman in labor. And in the Psalms, he's again described as a mother. And even in the New Testament, in Matthew and Luke's Gospel, God is described as a mother hen. So there is feminine imagery used to describe God in the Bible, but it's predominantly male. So would you go so far as say it's heretical to say God is a mother? Like we say uh, Heavenly Father in a prayer, could I say Heavenly Mother? Uh, I think I would say it's at least non-normative. That's not the language that sacred scripture has used to reveal it. And it almost seems like you're trying to force a gender on God. I think it's far safer just to stick with the language that God used to reveal himself. I like that. That's a good way. Of, I never actually thought of it that way. So you're not necessarily giving, saying definitively no, but let's just be safe and stick with what Jesus Christ, who is part of the Trinity, used himself. Exactly. See, it I, seems I think, like a, I think a that's far safer. Safe <laughs> you, could be, you could be more dogmatic and uh, assemble an argument as to why you shouldn't do that. But I think at the most basic level, we know God doesn't have gender, and the language used to describe God in the Bible typically refers to God as he and father. So let's just stick with that. It's also important to note in Genesis, both men and women are created in the image of God, emphasizing the both there. That means a woman creating the image of God, femininity in his essence is in God, and so is masculinity. And so that's important for understanding too the the different genders. God almost God encompasses fully both genders. There are also quite a lot of commentators, and I'm particularly thinking of Pope John Paul II in his Theology of the Body, who've noted or suggested that there's something about the complementarity of man and woman which allows them to image God together. And this corresponds with Scott Hahn's comparison to the Trinity and a human family, suggesting that it takes a community, a community of love, to reflect the image and life of God. Well said. 
And then at the end, Giovanna asked about the question of begetting. Do, do mothers beget as well? And the answer is yes. Both mothers and fathers beget children, producing things of the same kind as themselves. It is interesting, though, because she somewhat phrases it, why do we even ever say a father begets? Because it doesn't quite seem like, technically speaking, the father's doing much begetting. <laughs> I think our job is generally easier. That is true. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I think she raises a fair point. <laughs> so thank you again, Giovanna, for your questions. And as always, we invite more of them. If you want to disagree with what we say or you've got questions about what Lewis has said or comments that we've made, please feel free to contact us through all the usual means, restlesspilgrim.net. You can send us an email from there. And you can always find us on both Instagram and Twitter at Pints with Jack. Yeah, I don't know if it's good to be teasing this right now, but I'm looking forward to the comment we got from someone asking the question, what does Christian marriage look like in 2018? <laughs> That's going to be a fun one to answer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you'll get the answer of two bachelors with a little bit of help from, from the third bachelor, Lewis. After we answer this, we might be perpetually single. (laughs) (laughs) And as always, to end the episode, I have an iTunes review. This time it's Bible History with Matt Frad. Oh, he's big on the fight against pornography. Mm -hmm. Yes, Uh, Fight the New Drug, I think is his website. Or The Porn Effect. Anyway, this is my review of his podcast, Bible History. Are you a Christian who feels a bit intimidated by the Bible? Do you not know your Methuselah from your Mephibosheth? If so, subscribe to this podcast. Each week, Matt Frad releases a short five-minute episode where he reads Bible History, a book by Father Ignatius Schuster. Over the course of 182 episodes, you will hear the overarching narrative of the Bible from beginning to end. And at the conclusion of each episode, Matt asks some questions to test your comprehension and your memory of that chapter. Come join the journey each week through the Bible. I prefer the meth- Methasulia from the Mephibosheth. Matt, talking gibberish as usual. <laughs> Matt, I'm going to send you a link to that podcast. I think you need that in your life. <laughs> hey, you know what? Based on our, our, what we talked about last week, I'm just pretending. This is true. This is true. You're, you're, eventually, you're, you're eventually faking it most of the time. Exactly. I fool people. As long as you fool some of the people all the time, you're good to go. Well, until you get the opportunity to fool people again next time, further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.